Our gospel reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 1 through 29. If you'd like to follow along, this can be found on page 89 in the New Testament section of your Pew Bibles. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself but his disciples who baptized, he left Judea and started back to Galilee but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, "'Give me a drink.' His disciples had gone to the city to buy food." The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming back here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming. And is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
During her last year in seminary, a colleague of mine signed up for a class called Confession and Forgiveness from a Pastoral Perspective. The reading list looked great, and the 45 slots filled up on the first day of registration, impressive for a three-hour class that met at two in the afternoon. On the first day of class, the lecture hall was filled 10 minutes before class began. With everyone on the edge of their seats, the professor came in and asked, what do you think this class is about? The most eager students quickly gave some answers, the importance of forgiveness for everyday people, God's love for us, God's grace given to us, God's assurance of forgiveness. The professor nodded and then walked to the chalkboard and wrote on it one word, shame. For the most part, the students were intrigued. They may not have quite understood why shame would be such a major part of the curriculum, seeing as it wasn't even mentioned in the course description, but they were on board until the end of that first three-hour class when the professor dropped a bombshell. The final exam would be something different, he told them. Instead of a standard exam, each student would have to turn in a 20-page autobiographical essay about a personal experience of shame. Are you surprised that after that first day, one-third of the students dropped out of that class? What would you do if right now I asked you to turn to your neighbor and share a personal experience you've had with shame? Not embarrassment, like the way I felt when, at 10 years old, I went on stage during a church musical with my zipper down. Not guilt, which we might feel when we make a mistake or do something we know is wrong, but shame. The feeling that I am a mistake, that something is fundamentally wrong with me, that I am deeply flawed in some unfixable way. I'm betting if I asked you to share an experience when you felt truly ashamed, at least a third of you would flatly refuse. So I hope you won't be disappointed that although today's sermon was supposed to be about shame, it's not going to be. Not because I don't think shame is a relevant topic, it absolutely is, if for no other reason than that we all need to hear the good news of the gospel, that God made us just as we are, God loves us no matter what, and this means that every human being is inherently valuable and worthy of God's love. But this isn't a sermon about shame because this text isn't about shame in spite of what many of us have previously been taught. There is a long tradition of biblical interpretation of this text, which concludes that the woman at the well was totally immoral, probably even a prostitute. After all, she is living, so to speak, with a man who isn't even her husband. This tradition means that many of us come to this text preconditioned to see the shame this woman carries as clearly 
as she carries her water jar. But is there really shame in this story? Yes, this woman has been married five times, but there are perfectly acceptable reasons in the ancient Near East that this might have happened. Yes, the man she lives with now isn't her husband, but there is nothing in the text to suggest this is so awful. Yes, she has come to the well at the hottest, brightest time of day, which is perhaps ill-advised, but there's nothing that indicates she's trying to avoid being seen. So although from time to time it is worthwhile to reflect theologically about shame, today is not that day. Today, as we navigate a season of profound division, politically, racially, socioeconomically, religiously, this text both the story itself and its history of interpretation reveals the deeply human tendency to pass judgment and create boundaries that divide us from those we label different. And this story teaches us how those judgments and divisions and boundaries might be unraveled if we engage one another as human beings created by God, inherently valuable, and worthy of love and respect. Sister Helen Prejean is the Catholic nun who wrote the book, Dead Man Walking. If you didn't read the book, maybe you saw the movie. It tells the story of her experience as a spiritual advisor to a man on death row. Now, we might assume that Sister Helen ended up in this position because, well, She's a nun, and don't nuns often end up serving the people that no one else will? But her story is much more complicated than that. She grew up in a warm, loving Catholic family and decided at an early age she would be a nun. When she joined an order, she was determined to be the most pious, the most obedient, the most prayerful nun. She was seeking perfection until the church and the world around her began to change. During the Civil Rights Movement, there were many nuns from the United States who went to Latin America to work with those living there in poverty. And eventually, Sister Helen decided a cloistered life of prayer was not her calling. She developed a passion for working with the poor. She moved into a housing project in New Orleans and began to engage with the people there to really get to know them from these people whose backgrounds and lives were totally different from hers. She learned about what she describes as the other America, where people navigate the world without the connections that offer a layer of protection from consequences where people don't trust the police, and where the police don't trust the people. For the first time, she realized she wasn't so virtuous. She was protected and cushioned and resourced. One day, walking out of an adult learning center in her neighborhood, a man called out to her on the street, Hey, Sister Helen. He had a clipboard and was approaching everyone. Do you want to be a pen pal to someone on death row? He asked her. She didn't know much about the death penalty, but she knew if someone was on death row, that someone was probably poor 
and she was called to serve the poor. Besides, she thought, how hard can it be to write a letter? She'd been an English major, after all. She now describes this as her first encounter with sneaky Jesus. The Jesus who sneaks up on you and draws you in with something that seems harmless enough. I'm only going to write a few letters, she thought. But then she got a letter back from her pen pal on death row, a man named Pat Saunier, saying he never had any visitors. So she went to visit him. Then Saunier asked her to be his spiritual advisor, and she said, okay, not knowing that when he was put to death, the only person that could be with him all the way until the end was his spiritual advisor. Sneaky Jesus meets us where we are and draws us to places we never thought we'd go. That day on the street, signing her name to that clipboard, Sister Helen could not have foreseen that she would be the face of love Pat Saunier saw as he was put to death, or that his life and death would ignite in her a calling to speak out against the death penalty and for the love and forgiveness of all God's children. When Jesus and this unnamed woman meet at a well in Samaria, they are understandably wary of one another. Jesus has walked a long way on a hot, dry day, and being human, he is tired and thirsty. The woman is by herself with a water jar at a well, the ancient Near East equivalent of a singles bar, and she is naturally suspicious of the man who asks her for a drink. She's especially suspicious because she can tell he's Jewish. And Jews and Samaritans were deeply mistrustful of one another, even though to us the differences between them seem pretty trivial. Mostly it's a disagreement over where they should worship God, on a particular mountain or in Jerusalem. But as we know all too well, even a, even a seemingly trivial difference can create major boundaries and mistrust between people. Fortunately, Jesus fails to follow the culturally acceptable script. Instead of refusing to interact with a woman simply because she is a Samaritan and a woman, he engages her. He speaks to her. He listens to her. He sees her as more than her labels, all of which allows her to see beyond that Jesus is Jewish and a man. As they talk, she discovers that this tired and thirsty Jew is not just hanging out by a well waiting for someone to give him water. He knows things. He speaks in metaphors. He offers her water, but not the usual kind. He speaks about God in ways she has never heard before. Most remarkably, he is unafraid to talk with her, utterly unashamed by their encounter. He welcomes the opportunity to engage her, to converse with her, in spite of all the things that should divide them from each other. And in the end, their conversation is the longest recorded conversation between Jesus and any other person in the New Testament.
The woman leaves that conversation transformed, inspired to share the good news of this unlikely encounter with her community, the news that there is more to God than worshiping God in the right spot or the right way, the news that God might just be bigger than they thought, big enough, in fact, to hold together Jews and Samaritans and Gentiles and Romans and Presbyterians and Methodists and Baptists and Catholics and Muslims and Buddhists and black and white and native and immigrant and maybe even Democrat and Republican. God can hold us together. And if we are willing to engage one another beyond all the boundaries that divide us, we will be transformed. This Tuesday, we'll have a church supper and a discussion of the book Inspired by Rachel Held Evans. Evans died last year at 37 years old, and her death led to a remarkable outpouring from the diverse communities who had been affected by her work. This included the conservative evangelical Christian community in which she was raised, as well as the progressive, inclusive Christian community her books and blog posts and social media accounts brought together. The author of her New York Times obituary wrote, Ms. Evans was known to challenge traditional and largely male and conservative authority structures. She would spar with evangelical men on Twitter, debating them on everything from human sexuality to politics to biblical inerrancy. One of those men, Russell Moore, president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, said that he was her theological opposite in almost every way, but that she always treated him with kindness and humor. I was on the other side of her Twitter indignation many times, but I respected her because she was never phony, Mr. Moore said. Even in her dissent, she made all of us think and helped those of us who are theological conservatives to be better because of the ways she would challenge us. In her book, Inspired, Evans charts her own journey from reading the Bible as literal truth to understanding it as the spirit-infused word of God that emerged from specific cultural contexts and often reflects deep-seated human biases, and yet that still has much to teach us today. She writes, With scripture, we have not been invited to an academic fraternity. We've been invited to a wrestling match. We've been invited to a dynamic, centuries-long conversation with God and God's people that has been unfolding ever since, one story at a time. Near the end of the book, Evans retells this story we heard today. In her account, you can hear echoes of the old interpretation the woman carries with her some shame. But after she arrives at the well and begins to talk with Jesus, Evans imagines the two of them, these unlikely water sharers, delighting in one another. Their conversation is playful, intelligent, and peppered with laughter. And the woman leaves refreshed, restored, renewed 
by something more quenching and life-giving than the usual water from a well. The woman leaves inspired to go back to her city to round up all the people whose differences keep them apart, to set a table with bread and wine and flowers, to gather around it and sing and pray and talk and laugh and eat, to celebrate together the life-giving, shame-shattering, boundary-unraveling love of God. Amen.